Welcome. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, while we would love to see you in person, we're so glad that you have tuned in today. And whether you're a regular part of our downtown church or our church in North Liberty or uh, a part of neither, we're so glad that you are joining us here today. And uh, we pray that this morning is a blessing to you. In just a moment, we will be opening up the word. Pastor Brooks will be preaching and continuing in our First Thessalonians series. Uh, but before that, we thought it was necessary and helpful if, as a church, we gave a word of clarification about um, our plans moving forward in regards to social distancing, uh, community groups, as well as having large group services again. As you know, since March 15, we have been hindered from meeting together in large groups due to the pandemic. Um, and since then, we've had to adapt in order to connect with you, in order to hear from God's word, in order to worship. Um, and we've had to do virtual church. Um, it's something to be thankful for, but it's really a concession, and it's not ideal, and it's not what any of us would want. As of Monday, April 27th, uh, Governor Reynolds uh, gave a proclamation that in 77 counties, some of the social distancing restrictions would be lifted. Uh, but for churches, the restrictions on religious gatherings have been lifted, but they must adhere to social distancing guidelines in all 99 counties. These guidelines are maintaining social distance, guidelines for personal hygiene, and safety protocols. These guidelines are helpful, but they bring up a host of questions for us as a church at both locations, as we are one church in two locations, here in downtown Iowa City and one in North Liberty. Some of the questions this raises is, how do we do things in a way that are safe for the most people and for the most vulnerable among us, while also having an atmosphere of fellowship and worship as we gather back together. In our congregation, we have folks that have not been exposed to the virus as far as they know, and we have folks on the front lines who are coming in contact with it on a daily basis. In our congregation, we have folks that are healthy and have no pre-existing conditions, and even if they have the virus, may be asymptomatic or may not have any complications. We also have members of our church that are vulnerable, that it can be deadly if they come in contact with the virus. We also have folks in our congregation that are pretty okay with the, the isolation and working from home, and their lives haven't changed a whole lot. We have others that have lost their jobs. We have some who have been home for weeks, and some have not received a hug or a handshake for six weeks. As we move forward, we need to be wise and loving for all of these folks represented, as well as our community at large. Along with that, we have been given by the governor guidelines that are wise and good about safety protocols. These safety protocols must be in place for us to come together in groups larger than 10 people. Just to name a few of those guidelines, our kids' classes can have no more than 10 kids and no more than two adults. We would need to reconfigure our seats in North Liberty to stay under 250 people or less in the building at one time. We have to keep social distancing while in the building, and if you've been in our lobby in North Liberty, there is not social distancing taking place in that lobby. In North Liberty, this could mean up to 10 services in a weekend, and instead of feeling like fellowship and worship, it will feel like a futuristic sci-fi movie where people are standing in line to get their rations. It's not what we're going for. It's not a worshipful environment. 
So for us downtown, where we have one service and we have around 100 people come each week, you may think, great, we can go ahead and open up. Unfortunately, being one church in two locations, this creates a communication issue if we open up before North Liberty. And also, folks from North Liberty may uh, want to come down, rightly so, and worship with us downtown, thus creating uh, a lack of social distancing here. So as you can see, we have a number of considerations, a number of things to think through in order to create a safe and worshipful environment for everyone in our church, as well as those in the community that may come to our services. So, in consultation with an epidemiologist at the university, doctors at each hospital in Iowa City, and those on the front line uh, treating this virus, uh, under their recommendations, we will not be returning to services in the immediate future, and most likely this will last multiple more weeks. We are praying about these things, Uh, We are meeting to talk about these things, and you'll have more words soon on what this looks like and and maybe some target dates that you can look forward to. But I want to assure you that the elders of this church, the leaders of this church, are looking to the Lord first and foremost, but also professionals, scientists, doctors, and those on the front lines. We are not taking our cues from CNN or from Fox News or from what other churches are doing, but we want to move forward in a wise and loving way. We want to walk forward in faith and hope and love, and we also want to walk forward in wisdom. This is not an act of fear, but an act of faith, hope, and love in our God and love for one another and community. We'll have more details for you soon and stay in constant communication in every way possible. So plan of action, please pray for your leaders. There are difficult and challenging decisions to be made, and we, like you, are itching to get back to worship in person with you. Um, I ask that you would pray and educate yourself on what's going on so you can make a discerning and wise decision for you and your family as we move forward. This is all really difficult for each one of us, but let love uh, for one another and for our community and uh, desire to honor God guide the way. And lastly, we will give you two weeks' notice when we can meet back together in any fashion. So thank you um, for this. You can keep up with us and any updates on our website or app as well. We're going to continue our series in 1 Thessalonians, and um, I'd like to read today from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, it's good to be back at the downtown campus. Uh, man, it's been a long time since I've preached at this location. The last time I preached at this location, you were all sitting here. You weren't out there. So I'd much rather be with you face-to-face, as Jason said just a moment ago. But uh, we are taking advantage of the technology, and we're grateful, grateful for it. I long to the day, just like the Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, when I can see you again face-to-face. But for now, this will have to suffice. So thank you for joining us uh, on this, uh, this broadcast, tuning in on the web as we look at uh, 1 Thessalonians. So please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you, albeit in uh, circumstances that we wouldn't choose. And we thank you, uh, Lord, that we have the Word of God, which is available to us and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So, Lord, use the scripture that we're going to study and look at to 
bring us into a closer relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 uh, through 18. But before I get to the actual text, I want to start with the question. And that question is this. How do you respond to adversity? We are in unprecedented times. I'm sure you're getting sick of that, that phrase, unprecedented times. But it's true. There's a lot of adversity, health issues, economic issues. How do you respond when you get the proverbial punch in the stomach? How do you respond? December uh, of this year, December 17th in particular, was a difficult day for my wife and I, in particular my wife. Um, Her father has been, or had been, struggling with uh, early onset dementia, and he was in a nursing home, and he was declining rapidly. She expected her father to pass at any moment, and she got that moment, she got that call on December 17th. And so she called and, and told me, and we talked on the phone, and I, I consoled her, and, and she was hurting, but she was doing okay. And, and I said I had a meeting to go to, and then I would come home right after that meeting. So 10 minutes pass, and then I get a text from my wife, and she says, the doctor called, and I have to have surgery immediately. She'd had terrible back pain, uh, leg pain, sciatic issues, and she had an MRI, and the MRI came back, and the the doctor simply called her and said, you have a cyst the size of a grape that's pressing into your spine, and it has to be removed. And I looked at that text, and I just put my head down on the desk, and I I just started to weep. I was filled with two emotions simultaneously. I was filled for grief for my wife and her loss of her father, and I was also filled with anger. I was filled with anger, not at my wife. I I, I don't know who the anger was directed at, but I was just kind of like, are you serious? Can you just give this woman a break? Just, could could we go a little longer than 10 minutes? I mean, she just lost her dad. You know, that kind of, and so that's my typical response. When it, when I'm punched, Ver, in, in, a, in a metaphorical sense, my reaction is to wheel back and punch back. I, I tend to respond to adversity with anger. <laughs> I'm not recommending that. I'm just being honest. So when, when you experience adversity, you get that proverbial punch in the gut. What word, what, if you could choose just one word, if you could choose one word, what would that word be? I respond to adversity with If you're watching this and you're with someone, turn to that person and tell them, I respond to adversity with anxiety, or I respond to adversity with anger, or I get determined. So think about it, say it, verbalize it. If you're watching and you're by yourself, say it out loud. Okay, did you do it? Now, here's the question. How many of you responded with the word rejoice? Anyone? (laughs) That's not my default response to adversity. And yet, the text this morning, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, as you listen to that, If you're not a follower of Christ, 
And I don't imagine that everybody tuning in is a believer or believes the Bible or even understands the Bible. And even if you are, even if you are, even if you have been a Christian for many, many years, you understand the Bible, even, even if you're a Christian, and certainly if you're not a Christian, you read that text or you hear that text and you're like, that just sounds like unreasonable garbage. That's the kind of thing that you would read on a cheesy Hallmark card that you shouldn't ever buy or send to anyone, especially someone that's in pain. And yet here, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, who he has already stated repeatedly throughout the first five chapters, these are people that are suffering severe affliction. And he has the gall, he has the nerve, he has the audacity to say, rejoice always. How in the world can you rejoice always? When you hear that, maybe you think this just sounds a little bit unattainable. You wouldn't be the first person. One of my heroes in the faith is Corey Tinboom. She's the author of The Hiding Place. Her and her whole family participated in the Dutch resistance, in hiding Jews and helping them get out of the country. They were all eventually caught, and all of them except Corey uh, died in concentration camps or as a result of their helping out. And when she was imprisoned in Ravensbrück, she was with her sister Betsy. And as they were in the woman's dormitory, all packed in like sardines, in the middle of the night, she all of a sudden felt this intense searing pain, and, and she recognized that there were fleas that had infested her, her, her sleeping quarters. And they jumped out of bed, and they were slapping themselves and getting the fleas off. And, 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 and they said to one another, she said to her sister, Betsy, Betsy, how can we live in this place? And Betsy began to pray, Oh Lord, show us how we can live in this place. And then Betsy said, Corey, the scripture, the scripture that we read this morning, do you remember? And she read the exact verse that Paul said here, and rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ. And Betsy began to say, Corey, we must give thanks for everything. And Corey looked at her and says, How can we give thanks what is there to give thanks for? And Betsy began to count off the different things. The fact that you and I have been, have been stationed together in Ravensbrück, that's something to be thankful for. So they gave thanks for that. The fact that you were able to smuggle this very small Bible into the concentration camp, that's something to be give thanks for. So they gave thanks for that. The fact that we, since we are packed in here together with all of these women, Many women have come to Christ as we have studied the Bible together. That's something to be thankful for. And then Betsy said, and the fleas. And Corey interrupted her. I will not give thanks for the fleas. So even one of the heroes of the faith, Corey Tinboom, is like, if Paul were there, she would say, Paul, it ain't going to happen. I will give thanks for a whole lot of things, but I am not going to be thankful for the fleas. I am not going to give thanks for the coronavirus. I am not going to give thanks for the fact the economy tanked. I'm not going to give thanks for the fact that I had to bury my father-in-law. I'm not going to give thanks for the fact that my wife had to have five surgeries in two years. You get the gist, right? There are certain things we can read the Bible, we can read the command and think, seriously, God? How do you expect me to rejoice? And if you feel that way, 
It's because you're a real human being and you have a pulse. And that's okay. That's okay. Being told to rejoice when times are hard may seem unrealistic. But what if it's actually possible? What if in the midst of the worst adversity and the worst trials and the worst tribulations, what if in the midst of that, God could give you joy? What if? That's not a what if. That's a reality. That's a promise. That is your opportunity and my opportunity. But we have to understand two things. We have to understand first what it means to rejoice. So we're going to take a look at that as we look at the scripture here what it means to rejoice. And the second thing we're going to look at today as we look at this scripture is understanding how rejoicing is possible. How to actually do that. How the gospel makes that not just a a pipe dream which is unattainable, but a reality that's attainable for you and I. Regardless of how mature you are or immature you are in the faith, or potentially, for many of you watching, who do not have faith yet. That is available for each and every person that's listening or watching this. So, let's take a look at what it means to rejoice. The text, again. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does it mean to rejoice? This is a command. Paul gives a command. He says, rejoice. It's an imperative. That means he's telling you this is what you and I must do, what we must do. Rejoice. It's a command. It's not an option. But what does he mean? What does he mean? The Greek word, uh, which will be uh, on the slide that you'll see here in in a moment, the Greek word, it means means, uh, to be in a state of happiness, of happiness, and well-being. If you look up rejoice, the English word, in the dictionary, uh, Webster's Dictionary, you'll see it, it means to feel joy or great delight. Now that poses a dilemma. That poses a dilemma. So, so get this, follow this. Paul's commanding us to rejoice, which according to the English definition, it means to feel, to feel joy or great delight. How do you feel joy when simultaneously you're feeling sorrow at the same time. Is that reasonable? Is that reasonable? For, for the thir- church in Thessalonica, Paul's already told them in chapter 4, verse 13, because many of them were grieving. Now, when you grieve, you feel pain. You feel loss. You're feeling sad. He says, I know you're grieving. This is verse 13 of chapter 4. But I don't want you to grieve without hope as others do. So Paul's not saying don't feel sad. So the command to rejoice does not mean that we can't feel sad. In fact, uh, if you have your Bibles with with you on your phone or uh, in print, please turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As As you turn there, the context is Paul is telling these, uh, the church in Corinth uh, about all of the difficulties that he's gone through, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't um, 
mean that they, they can't rejoice. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet we are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet killed, get this, as sorrowful yet rejoicing. So rejoicing in pain Rejoicing and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. So it's not simply, it's not as simple as Paul saying, feel a certain way. But rather, in the midst of your pain, declare joy and recognize that that rejoicing will come, depending on where your head goes. Depending on where your head goes. So let's look to understand how this is possible to the text. Three commands that Paul gives us. The first one we've looked at, he commands us to rejoice. But secondly, he says that we are to rejoice always, rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. So the, the second command, the first command is to rejoice. The second command is to pray without ceasing. Now that does not mean, that does not mean that we are to pray at all times to the exclusion of all other activities. There will be times when you pray to the exclusion of all other activities. That's implied. If, if you're a follower of Christ, of course you're going to do nothing but pray at certain times. But what Paul is speaking of is the kind of prayer that you pray as you go. So as you are serving dinner, as you are driving to work, as you are doing your jobs, as you are changing the diaper, as you are having a conversation with your spouse, as you are talking with your neighbor, as you are doing life, you're praying. So this isn't the act of moving your lips or dropping to your knees, but this is the act of engaging God in mental conversation as you're doing life. It's an attitude. It's a disposition. So that's the second command. The third command is to give thanks, to give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now that is easier said than done. That is easier. That does not mean to give thanks for the circumstance. So when my wife's father passed away, she was not commanded to give thanks that her dad died. That's not what it means. Nor does it mean I give thanks because of the COVID crisis. I'm not giving thanks for the virus. I'm giving thanks in the midst of these circumstances. Those are different things. Those are different things. So the key to rejoicing is to pray and give thanks. And yet, and yet, that's not a guarantee. That's not a guarantee. Let's take a look at two, two things which will absolutely gut the possibility of rejoicing. Two worldviews. Two worldviews. The first worldview, um, prayer is not really a possibility. And giving thanks doesn't really make a lot of sense. That's the worldview of secularism. 
in secularism, uh, there's no one to pray to. Or, let me rephrase that. Those who buy into secularism do not believe there is someone to pray to. So they believe themselves to be alone in the universe, not alone in the sense that there aren't people around, but we as humanity, we are alone. There is nothing, there is no creator. We're here by time because of time, matter, and chance. We just are. And therefore, because there is no, there is no creator, there is no ultimate purpose because we are accidents. So to find meaning in this life, you have to define it for yourself. And to define meaning for yourself, what we do, what a secularist must do, is find what they enjoy in life, find what they enjoy in life, and establish meaning in what they enjoy. Now, here's the problem with that. Everything that you enjoy, everything that you derive joy from in this world can and will be taken from you. Your health, your wealth, your relationships. So it is not possible to maintain an attitude of joy and rejoicing in the midst of uh, difficult circumstances when your joy is dependent on those circumstances. So the secularist has no one to pray to. And furthermore, who do you thank when you don't receive anything from anyone? You are the maker of your own destiny. So to give thanks doesn't make a lot of sense. But there's a second way to kill joy, a second worldview, and it's, it's the opposite of the secularist, because that, you, you would think that, well, if secularism is a joy killer, well, then religion is a solution. Not even close. Not even close. Works-based religion is another way to ensure that you will never be able to rejoice. Works-based religion is the idea that I believe there is a God and I certainly will pray to this God and I will obey this God so that I will earn my status and earn this God's favor. These people pray, but rejoicing is very, very difficult. Why? Because, because if, if they are blessed, they assume they are blessed by this God, this deity, because of their obedience. So it's very difficult to maintain a status of thanksgiving when things are good because, well, the reason you're blessed is because you've done a good job. You're owed. And when things are bad, you think one of two things. If things are going bad, if I've lost my job, if, if I've got cancer, or my spouse is hurting, or my marriage is falling apart, if things go bad, you will conclude one of two things if you believe in works-based righteousness. In other words, you are righteous because of what you do. You will conclude that if things go bad, I must be to blame. It must be because I have failed. In which case, you cannot be thankful and have a state of I am condemned at the same time. You cannot have a state of joy and understand or believe that you are being condemned or being punished for your failures. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You think the problem is you. Or, and this is very, very common within religious circles, and it doesn't matter which religion. If things go bad and you don't think that you're the problem, you begin to think maybe God is the problem. That maybe God has dealt you a bad hand that you don't deserve. You become like the, like the, uh, uh, the psalmist Asaph 
in Psalm 73, who looks around him and he sees all of these people prospering and then he looks at his own life and he sees his pain and he sees his suffering and he begins to accuse God. Look at all these people. They, they don't follow you and let you, they get all the, all the jobs, they get all the money, they get all the food, they get all the wealth, they get all the praise and look at me, I've served you and I'm in pain. And they become bitter. You can't be thankful and bitter simultaneously. So what's the solution? The solution is the gospel. The solution is the gospel. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, When Paul says, our gospel came to you in power, what he means is this. When we came to you, we told you that God became man and dwelt among us. And that God's name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ took your sin to the cross, and he atoned for your sin, and he died and was raised again, and gives you the gift of eternal life, a pardon, and his righteousness. And that's good news. That's good news. The gospel leads to righteousness because it infuses prayer with thanksgiving. Take a look at the, at the, at the, um, the slide, and you'll see that the gospel, the gospel uh, shows us that what we deserve, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says the wages of sin is death. Now, what is a wage? A wage is something you earn. You go to work, you put in your time, you do a good job, and you get paid. And if you're not paid, well, then it's not justice. Paul says, the wages of sin, what I deserve, what you deserve, what all of us deserve, is death. We don't deserve anything. And that's not good news. But the second half of verse 23 in Romans chapter 6 is this. But the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The gift, it's not something you earn it's not something i deserve god says i have purchased this for you with my blood i am extending this to you as a gift of grace i want you in my covenantal family that's grace and that's good news and that's the gospel and it's available to all who call on the name of the lord But it's better than that. How could it be better than that? It's not just simply something that God gives us so that we can get a ticket to an afterlife. That's true. That's true. But here's the implications of the gospel in a deeper deeper way. It means that everything that you and I experience, everything that is good and everything that is bad, God uses for our good. Everything. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I don't consider my present sufferings worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And later in that same chapter, in verse 28, he says, God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, that we might be conformed to the likeness and image of Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the loss of your job 
the death of your father, the surgery that you had to experience, and even the betrayal of the relationship of the person that abandoned you, everything that you experience, good, bad, and neutral, God is using all of those things, weaving them together for your glory and his glory. You say, well, I don't see how it works. I don't either. Sometimes you look at God and say, I will not give thanks for the fleas. Not going to happen. And that's what Corey Tinboom said. And then weeks later in Ravensbrook, she saw her sister just almost giggling, almost giddy, all laughing to herself. And she says, why are you so happy about it? She says, Corey, the fleas, the fleas. Remember the fleas? I said, yes, I remember the fleas. Have you ever wondered why the guards never come in when we have our Bible study? I found out it's because this dorm is infested with fleas, Corey. The reason you and I are able to open the scriptures and share the gospel with these women is because of the fleas. <laughs> now, sometimes God gives us a window and we see that. And many times he doesn't. But that doesn't change the reality that he's working all things for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose, even the fleas and even the coronavirus, and anything else in between. And when you are standing, not on your circumstances, but on the rock that is Jesus Christ, nothing can move you, and joy and rejoicing is attainable in any and every circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for the blood of Christ, which covers our sin, and we thank you for the righteousness that comes through the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the promise that we have that everything is working out for our good, not that everything is good, and we thank you, Lord, and we give you praise in every circumstance, and we rejoice in the midst of our suffering, and pray that you would bring about your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in grace, we'll see you next week.